May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. I don't think it a newsflash if I stated that we are living in emotional times. Martha Nussbaum, in her book entitled Political Emotions, Why Love Matters for Justice, writes the following, all societies are full of emotions. Liberal democracies are no exception. The story of any day or week in the life of even a relatively stable democracy would include a host of emotions. Anger, fear, sympathy, disgust, envy, guilt, grief, many forms of love. Some of these episodes of emotion, Nussbaum continues, have little to do with political principles or public culture, but others are different. They take as their object the nation, the nation's goals, its institutions and leaders, and one fellow citizens as fellow inhabitants of a common public space. Or Nussbaum, emotions inspire. They can inspire hate and prejudice. They can inspire this type of rhetoric that creates an allergic reaction to the other. Or like the emotions inspired by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. or Dorothy Day or Pope Francis and others, Emotions that can direct us towards a set of shared goals that foster getting people to think larger thoughts and to recommit themselves to a larger common good. To commit to a larger common good. To commit. I'm reminded of the words of African-American poet and social critic writer James Baldwin, who once observed that to commit is always to be in danger. To commit is always to be in danger. Well, what sort of danger are we talking about? I guess the danger that is clearer in presence, in present when, when emotions that denigrate, isolate, marginalize people are relied upon as guides in the process of lawmaking and social formation. When, for example, the disgust that people have for another people group is used as a valid reason for treating those people in a discriminatory way. The danger when emotional frames are advanced in such a way that the full and equal humanity of an individual, their their inherent dignity is overlooked, marginalized, deemed unimportant. Emotional cultivation of the sort, however, that Nussbaum talks about is that the kind of emotional cultivation that inspires radical welcome 
that inspires the embrace of the neighbor, and that transforms society. Now, this is a dangerous business as well. In the end, emotions are not simply impulses, but contain appraisals that have an evaluative content. They say a lot about who we are, how we envision our lives, how we envision our collective society, how we envision our place in this world. Emotions matter. And emotions have mattered for the Christian church. In fact, we're heirs of a very emotional theology, one might say. Our gospel lesson presents to us some very emotional theology for us to consider. And we shouldn't be surprised. After all, we are an emotional group of people. Yes, we are Episcopalians that gather on the Lord's Day to sing, to pray, to sing even more love songs, to bring the words of the Psalter back into the fabric of our communal life, words shot through with emotion of love. At times, desperation. At times, hope. We confess. We even share the peace. We share a meal. We even share coffee and cookies before we leave the warm embrace of this cathedral family, this cathedral community. When you think about it, worship is this unabashed display of public affection. For we don't worship in an isolated space. We worship as part of the landscape of this larger city, this larger community, this nation. I often wonder what visitors think as they see us kneel and confess, as they see us sing, they watch us eat, they join us. What's this all about? What's the fuss all about? These, these people look like they have strong emotions toward the God they address. They love one another. Now, where did I put that pocket-sized bottle of hand sanitizer? Because this place is a bit too emotional for me. Well, our way of being, our communal life, our mission and values, the very pieces that undergird this cathedral community are rooted in the lessons from our gospel reading, are rooted in the story that invites us into an emotional theology of love, to love God, to love neighbor. What are we to do with this emotional theology? I would like to suggest that we allow it to transform us, to receive the invitation to enter closer and closer into what the Christian tradition is called the mystery of God. But it's a mystery that is revealed in grace and mercy, revealed in the kind of community that we've gathered together here, a community of people who have removed themselves from the concepts used to isolate and control and marginalize them, and have come to embrace the gospel story that says that in Christ all are one, to love God. Yes, it sounds like a daunting task, and it is. In fact, the Christian tradition lets us know that it's a daunting task, but it's an invitation, nevertheless, to step closer toward a God that has 
taken the decisive step to reveal God's self in love in Christ Jesus. Throughout the church history, we witness saints and sinners alike longing to connect with this God in a way that meets their deepest longing and also transform their desires. Many of us can recall the famous lines of St. Augustine or Augustine in his confessions that our hearts remain restless until they find their repose, their rest, tranquility in God. Now, I know that's a paraphrase, but I think you get the point, that the invitation is to rest, to abide, to move toward a God that reveals his very own self as love. To love God is to connect. It's very simple. It's an invitation to practice the piety of heart and soul before a God that is decisive about the way that he, that God, has communicated God's self to the world. For God so loved the world that God gave. God continues to give. Continues to give, inviting us to move closer and closer to trust, to hope, to pray. But going inward... But outward toward God should never lead us or impede us away from the neighbor. Before the lawyer who raised the question, what is the greatest commandment, could run off to a cave and love God forever in an uninterrupted space, before the lawyer could run and build walls around himself to have unfettered worship between him and God, Jesus says, oh, and by the way, there's the neighbor. Yes, the neighbor. The neighbor. The neighbor is part of this vocation of love. The neighbor is also part of our vocation as a community not strictly for those who are ordained, but for an entire community that gathers to worship and love on God. It's the community that is called to love on the neighbor. See, the point is not to get lost in the deep mystery that is God, because the deep mystery God is, but it's also to recognize that before the face of the neighbor, we also encounter a deep mystery a mystery that escapes the concepts we use to manage our anxiety before the other. A mystery that comes to us, as Emmanuel Levinas, Jewish philosopher, once noted, in the nakedness of their face, in the vulnerability of their presence. Levinas goes on to say, they come to us, the neighbor, the other, with one call with the call, indeed, the ordination to serve. So that the first words out of our mouths should be and can be, how can I serve you? How can I be with you? How can I walk with you? The mystery of the neighbor. It was the Saturday of May the 15th, 2005. 
newly minted Master Divinity and Master in Theology students, the six of us had gathered right outside of Hodge Hall, a hall that we had shared for five years. Six of us, friends, talking about what was next. Some of us were planning to be off to the Goethe Institute to learn German to come back and do Ph.D. work. I, along with a friend, were on our way to do pastoral residencies in different parts of this country. Others were going into the church to serve as pastors. And there we were. We put our families to bed. We were given 24 hours to move out. And so we thought we would need some time just to hang out, talk, be with one another. Into our small, intimate circle on the campus of Princeton Seminary, in came a stranger, a woman carrying a piece of luggage. She came toward us and came into our small circle and handed us a paper. We asked, how can we help you? And we received no answer, and so we thought, oh, well, let's see. Let's try to figure this piece out. So we asked again, how can we help you? And then I said, ¿Cómo te podemos ayudar? Nothing. And so we thought, okay, maybe, maybe she doesn't speak English. So I said, parlar italiano, which I know a little bit. And, of course, we all studied ancient Greek and Hebrew and Latin. Well, that wasn't going to help us during this moment. And so we went down the list. My friend Hannes, we went on and on. And finally, in this very exhausted voice, she said, Niet, niet, niet. It's Russian. Handed this paper to us. We looked at it. It was an address. We kind of just looked at each other. Okay, who's up? I said, all right, I'll take it. I took the piece of paper I escorted her, nearly dislocated my arm as I reached to grab what turned out to be a very, very heavy piece of luggage. We headed toward the bottom of Stewart Hall, the computer lab. It was back in the day before iPhones and GPS on phone. So I went to the computer lab to print out a map. And on our way, we went off the campus of a seminary. The two of us leaned into the darkness Sheer silence between us. My arm in pain. I'm sure she was tired. And on our way we went to Nassau Street where I hailed a cab. Got into the cab after putting the luggage in the trunk. And I said to the cab driver, this is where we need to go. He turned around and he said, this is your lucky night. I'm driving my cousin's cab. I'm from New York. I don't know New Jersey. You're going to have to help me get there. So I thought, okay, great. The meter is running, and I'm going to help our cab driver get to our address. And so we did. The three of us drove eight miles, finally found the place, knocked on the door. And I could hear a bit of commotion behind the door. When I knocked on the door, me and my guest, traveler, all of a sudden, An explosion of emotions occurred. Weeping, wailing, laughter. 
Everyone just exploded. It's like the air was sucked out of the room. And all I could do was just witness this explosion. And my eyes were also transfixed at this massive icon of St. Michael the Archangel with his lance into the heart of the serpent. And then everyone started crying out, Babushka, Babushka. Babushka, babushka, grandma, grandma, grandma. She walked in, was flooded by love and hugs and kisses. There was not a dry eye in the place. I just stood there looking at St. Michael and watching everything. And finally, one of the daughters, one of her daughters came to the door and said, Where did you find her? We've been looking for her all day. Her flight came in at 6. We had the state troopers looking for her. Where did you find her? And I said, Well, she found me on the campus of the seminary. And, well, hugs and kisses and tears. And I sort of just stood there and soaked it all in. The door closed. I walked away toward the cab. I was ready to get in the cab when I felt a tug on my sleeve. And it was my traveling companion. Tears racing down her face. She hugged and kissed, hugged and kissed me. It was like a moment out of a Charlie Chaplin black and white silent movie where it's really awkward and jerky. And that's what it looked like. That's what it felt like as she just showered me with kisses. And I could feel the warm tears rolling on her face onto mine. And then she stepped back and did the sign of the cross and sent me on my way. The neighbor, the stranger, The one who comes our way to show us the way. To love God and to love neighbor is to open our hearts to be loved by the neighbor. To be guided, to be cared for, to be ministered, to be ordained by the neighbor. And so, people of God, rise up as our hymns proclaim. Rise up to the call to love God and love the neighbor. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.